1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Know the Faith, Defend the Faith. I'm William Hemsworth. Great to be with you as always. Pleased to have um, our guest back to the show, Gary Machuda. Gary, how are you doing today?
0: Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Can't complain. How are you doing,
1: Gary? I'm doing well. And before we get started with our topic today, um, you want to give us a? You've been doing a lot of great things on your YouTube channel, Apocrypha Apocalypse. Can you kind of give us a overview of what you've been up to? I've been really loving the series on the
0: lists. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The uh, one of the the main um, defenses Protestants give for the shorter Old Testament canon is Old Test or early church father list, and uh, they usually will just list names of early church fathers that supposedly uh, believe Christians should only follow the proto canon. And so what I'm doing is I'm just going through those lists, and then um, I'm actually adding some names that normally aren't included, and. You know, asking some interesting questions, some things that even scholars don't really approach. And I'm having a lot of fun. I don't know if anybody else is, but, uh, you know, that's fun. And uh, and we also throw in some other stuff, too. Uh, I, I had – this was actually an objection thrown out like James White threw out at me at my debate with him a long time ago, where he asserted that everyone who knew Hebrew and, and rabbinic tradition – knew that the proto-canon was the only true canon, and and it was ignorant fathers who didn't know Hebrew that, you know, they're the ones that uh, adopted the so-called Apocrypha. I did a little video on that. I actually found a really cool quote from Rufinus where he just destroys that whole belief. So you'll have to check it out, Apocrypha Apocalypse. (laughs)
1: yeah it's definitely check out the youtube channel that's one of the youtube channels i recommend everyone follow on my blog recently so awesome. it's 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 great stuff so thank you and real quick and i i know because i missed it in my introduction i'm sorry i come on, i'm hopped up on caffeine gary <laughs> um your your radio show hands-on apologetics on virgin most powerful how's everything going with the radio show
0: oh rocking and rolling I have a great guest william albrecht ken litchfield uh You know, um, it's just been a ton of fun. Had some very interesting conversion stories, reconversions. Uh, There's also a fellow named Eddie Trask. I don't know if you're familiar with him. But he's got a cool uh, channel called uh, Catholic Recon, where he just basically interviews converts, refers to the Catholic faith. And uh, he uh, when he came back to the church, he did some really in-depth research into the Reformation. So I've been doing a series with him. Where we tap into that research and it's really cool, interesting insights. Oh, great! To, yeah, I, 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 I did yourself, hear. By the way, I'll oh, I well, include you. you in the panoply of uh, stars that uh, frequent the show.
1: Well, I don't know about the whole stars thing, but but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, I, I did. I did hear the episode with uh, with Eddie, and I did catch the interview that you had with him about how you got into apologetics too. So that was very good. Yeah, cool. What are Our topic today, normally I have you on, we talk about the Deuterocanon, so I thought maybe, you know, i have you on to talk about something different. And you did a CD series with Catholic Productions called, Is Salvation Guaranteed? And of course, it goes into eternal security and all that. But I guess, can you, and I know this is a loaded question, can you give us maybe the general Protestant view on salvation versus the Catholic view, and then we can go into that? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, easier said than done. Right. I, uh, um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different beliefs within Protestantism, as you all know. Right. Um, uh, one, when it comes to eternal security, there's a line of thought that what, if you're someone is saved, if they're truly saved, they're justified, they're made right with God, they're in His fellowship, that uh, that that cannot be undone. Okay, so. In a sense, once saved, always saved. So if you're truly justified, you truly will end up in heaven. And there's even within that group that believes in eternal security. And by the way, that's really, I think, a minority position within Protestantism. Most Protestants don't hold on to eternal security. But even within those who do, there are often nuances. Some will claim that, yeah, you can sin and sin greatly, and it doesn't affect your justification at all. There's others who will say, well, you might be able to apostatize from the faith and and lose your salvation. Um, And, uh, you know, there's a wide variety of views on that, but they they all essentially kind of follow that same line. Uh, As opposed to the Catholic belief, and I think many other Protestants, they believe that you can be truly saved, you could be made right with God, Um, but... There's also that continuation where you remain faithful by God's grace, and ultimately, at the end of your life, you'll be judged by works, right, by the fruit Mm -hmm. of what you've done through justifying faith, working in love, and uh, so it is possible for you to sin in such a way to destroy that fellowship you have with God, and if you do not repent before the end of your life, uh, then you'll be damned, so it is possible for someone to be justified and yet not enter into glory
1: right and some of those protestant groups that would hold to that would be like the free will Baptists, the general arminians Mm -hmm. things like that but like you said there's a lot of different views within protestantism only very few actually hold to that eternal security aspect now gary how much of that has to do with um i guess the various interpretations of scripture
0: yeah well a, a lot to do with it actually and uh yeah in my uh is Salvation Guaranteed, uh, said, I kind of go into something that I discovered, William, while doing apologetics for a number of years, and that is that Catholics and Protestants approach Scripture in two very different ways. And for Catholics who defend the faith, if they don't understand how Protestants approach it, you'll just end up going around in a circle, especially on issues of salvation, good works, whether you're saved or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what I did was I started off with two texts, and I asked basically, which of the two texts do you think is most fundamental, most important? And one is Matthew 7:12, where Jesus says, uh, "Do to do to others whatever you would have them to do to you." This is the law and the prophets. Okay, and then the other text is Romans 3.28, that we consider a man to be justified by faith apart from works of law. And generally, if it's a mixed audience, the Catholics will point to Matthew as being center, and Protestants will point to Romans as being more center, more important, more um, uh, fundamental, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting, because Catholics would say, if you ask the Catholic, why did you pick Matthew? They would probably say, well, first, Jesus says it, right? God incarnate actually says it. Uh, it's the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you've had others do unto you. And Jesus even says that this encapsulates the law and the prophets, the entire Old Covenant. So you would think that would be central, more fundamental. But and if you look at Romans, Romans is by Paul. It's not by Jesus, Um He doesn't say that this is, you know, the law and the prophets. But most Protestants would probably point to Romans. And that's because when Catholics approach the Bible, we see every book, every word as being inspired by God. And so it's all equally authoritative. And so for a Catholic, citing one verse in Scripture is really no different than citing another verse in Scripture. They're both equal, have equal weight, right? Right. That's not true for Protestants. What I've learned is that within Protestantism there all verses aren't equal. That there are some verses that are more fundamental than other verses. Now, of course, they'll say they're all inspired by God. Sure. But there's some that are clearer and more central than others. And uh, in that talk I point to the Westminster Confession. And Westminster what, Confession actually kind of explains a little bit of this. Uh, it says that all things in Scripture, this is in chapter 1-7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation is so clearly propounded and open in some place in Scripture or other that not only to learn, But the unlearned, due to the use of ordinary means, would obtain a sufficient understanding of them. And then it goes on to say in 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true or false sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, so it denies that there are different senses to Scripture, It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So there are texts in Scripture, according to the Westminster Confession, and this is something I see largely within Protestantism Mm -hmm. as a whole, that some texts are said to be more clear than other texts. And uh, William, one of my earliest debates, I debated a guy uh, named uh, McCarthy, and uh, he is a former Catholic, not MacArthur, but McCarthy. And he's a Baptist. And we were on a radio show on a Protestant station. And uh, I we were talking about baptism, I believe. And I brought up First Peter 3, 20 through 21, right, where it talks about, right. you know, eight souls were saved through water. And this is a prefigured baptism, which saves you now. So I pointed out, well, you see, baptism saves. It does something, right? And his response really floored me. He said, you know, this is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to understand. And, you know, I was thinking, what exactly is difficult? I mean, we know who Noah was. We know the flood. It's pretty plain. And, but you yeah, think, so. we know the language. Baptism now saves you. Which word didn't you understand? I mean, where's the ambiguity? Why right. is this so not clear? And the thing is, is because theologically— it didn't fit with his Baptist faith, right? They believe that baptism is just a symbol, that you've already been saved. And so when you have a text like this, this is an unclear verse, right? And then according to this idea of Scripture interprets Scripture, you interpret this verse in light of a more clear verse that is a verse that fits your theology. And then that verse you know, you have to harmonize both of them.
1: So like interpreting it in light of Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for example?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, and every it seems like every topic has its own, I call them trump verses, right? You know, like a card will trump another card in a card game. Right. And, and so it's like, no matter what verse you bring up on salvation, for example, um, they will trump it with appeal to, like you said, I think Ephesians two eight and nine are, is probably the ace of spades of all Trump forces. <laughs> you know. But there is others like Romans three, twenty-eight, John three, sixteen, Titus three, five, seven, and so on. But uh and this this is why it's frustrating when Catholics and Protestants dialogue, William, because basically uh, let's say you're talking justification. And your Protestant friend says that good works have no role whatsoever in justification. So you cite James 224, right? See that a man is justified by works and not right. by faith alone. And that seems pretty clear, right? <laughs> but you know what happens is that is an unclear verse, right? It doesn't fit with their Protestant theology. So they trump it by a clear verse, you know, clear. Rome you know ephesians two eight and nine that by grace you've been saved through faith this is not of yourself this gift of God not of works lest any man should boast so ephesians two trumps james two twenty four and for the Catholic it's you know it just seems like you're arguing in a circle going around and round because right. they're both inspired right how come you know you're waiting for the explosion to go off in james two twenty four thinking you know how could you refute that? But, you know, it has no impact. Because why? Because it's been trumped by Ephesians.
1: Do you know when I get that? I don't know how to phrase this, scary When that style of trumping started happening?
0: Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. I think it really is. And uh, if you would listen to that series with Eddie Trask, it, I think it started ultimately with Martin Luther that there were certain fundamental passages in Scripture that he believed fit his own religious experience. And so when he reads the Book of Romans or Galatians, Luther read his own personal experience into the text, right? And that means certain passages jump out and certain passages don't really fit. They don't really make sense. And like it or not, all Protestants today ultimately when they approach scripture, they're really reading scripture through the lens of Luther's experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there are some verses, like I said, that seem more central, jive more with that whole worldview, while other ones just are difficult, and they're just off the radar screen. Um, Marcus Grody has a great uh, program of the verses I never saw. Oh, All yeah. these verses that, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure you had it too, right? As a Protestant, you know you ran across verses and you are like when did this end up in my bible i don't remember seeing yeah. this
1: well one of them for me was the first peter 321 ah, uh, that really? that one and then hebrews 6 about how s- those who believe cannot taste taste salvation again or you know, right. I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing that those were two big ones for me so does yeah. this does this extend a doctrine as well i mean we talked about salvation but Um, like other things like the Eucharist, for example, or. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so it's important if you want to communicate with Protestants, you need to know what the Trump verses are and be able to show them in scripture how they ought to be interpreted. And once you address those, everything else fits. Right. For example, once you're able to address Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Then you could bring in James 2 and all the other passages to say, see, this is how it all harmonizes. Um, But, you know, uh, the same thing's true for other past uh, doctrine. Like, for example, well, uh, with the Eucharist, ultimately, the Trump verses have to do with faith and works. That's usually something you have to address before you do the Eucharist. Same thing with baptism, right? It's like more fundamental than uh, these other ones. Once you get that out of the way— then you could deal with other objections. Okay. Uh, but I think, you know, I think the the idea of faith and works is really, you know, the top of the the heap as far as all those different Trump verses.
1: OK. Now, do you think the works that our Protestant friends are talking about affects how they see well affects how they see salvation? Because we say, you know, it's faith working through love. You know, it's through grace that we're able to do these things more mm-hmm. Through baptism, it's not work we're doing, it's work that Jesus is doing in us, mm-hmm. so to speak. Our Protestant friends say, no, you're doing baptism, so you're doing a work, so you're saved by work. Do you think that's kind of how the differences in language
0: comes across? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you go through this, and I do that in that CD set, um, and you're able to to show what's being taught, you actually help a lot of Protestants, because I found, in my experience— A lot of Protestants are kind of confused as to what is the relationship of faith and works. Because on one hand, they've been told and they hear every Sunday, you know, it's by faith alone that you're justified, not by anything you do. And yet they read scripture and they find out things like, you know, you have to do good works, that you'll be judged on your works at the end of time. So good works are like not good and good, you know, Mm -hmm. and trying to, and many times people just don't have a structure to put where works fit in with all this. And uh, so, you know, if you want, I could go into Ephesians 2, 8, 9 if you want. Or, you know, with Eternal Security, that's another one that they have uh, three or four uh, Trump verses that they use to reinterpret everything else that speaks against Eternal Security.
1: No, Gary, since Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a big one and one and beautiful passage of scripture, I say yeah. amen to it all, all the time. Yeah. As, as we all should. Let's go ahead and hop in and go into that and maybe ex- explain that passage, because it is very important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. OK, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Uh, let me t- give you a little background story, William. Um, sure. There, there was a time I was called into a group of uh, Protestants and Catholics. The Catholics there, uh, they were dialoguing with uh, Protestants and uh, and they brought in a ringer. The Protestants brought in some guy who was like super biblical, you know, and. The Catholics couldn't keep up with them. So they said, hey, Gary, can you join the group? And I said, fine. And I listened, and everybody's talking back and forth. There was no connection, right? So I said, hey, how about next time we get together and you have somebody from your side, the Protestant side, explain how you're justified, and we'll have somebody from the Catholic side explain how the church teaches justification. Then at least we, we know each other's position. We can dialogue. Right. Mm-hmm. So we won't be talking past each other. So uh, afterwards, the Catholics are like, well, it was your idea, Gary. You do it. OK, so I was glad. So what I did was I started off. I said, I'm going to show you how what the church teaches is biblical. I want everybody to open up your books to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and 10. Now, this was really interesting, William, because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are Trump verses. But they never go to 10 right? right. Exactly. So when I said eight, nine, and ten, as soon as I said ten, all the Protestants grabbed their Bibles, right? Because they're like, wait, hold on a second, he's going to go like well, one first more.
1: Yeah, what's that one say? Like,
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So so I, I said, okay, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, it is gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus for the good works that he's prepared beforehand, that we may walk in them. And I said, okay, let's walk through this. Paul is talking about three stages in justification. Okay, now, again, justifications where a sinner is made a saint, a sinner who is unrighteous becomes righteous, a person who is unacceptable to God becomes acceptable. Mm -hmm. Okay, just for anyone who's not familiar with that terminology. Okay, so... There's before, during, and after. Paul says before, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This means nothing you do prior to being made right with God justifies you. You can't twist God's arm to make you righteous. Okay. And then I quote from the Council of Trent, and I show this is exactly what the Council of Trent taught, that Catholics believe the same thing Protestants do. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. It's purely by grace through faith. Okay. Then uh, Paul says, for we are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Okay. So this is the during justification. How does God make us just? He does it by uh, recreating us in Christ Jesus, okay? So Protestants, now here Protestants and Catholics differ a little bit. Protestants would say we're made just by a legal declaration. God treats us as if we're righteous, although really we're not, okay? He's the judge. We're the guilty criminals. He pronounces that we're not guilty in virtue of what Christ did on the cross. Catholics, William, believe that. Okay, we believe that there is an imputation, a calling, a declaration, if you will, in justification. But the difference is when God declares us to be righteous, we become righteous in him declaring it. So there's a real change, right? We are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus, like Paul says in Ephesians. So before justification, good works don't matter. It's by grace through faith alone, right? then during justification, that's where we're both declared and made righteous. And I give them a bunch of text from Trent to show that. And then afterwards, right? This is where verse 10 comes in. We're created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works that we may walk in them. So after justification, once we're united to Christ, once we become righteous by his grace, and we just say that's through faith and baptism, then good works follow, right? That we are supposed to do good works. And it's interesting, too, that last part, he uses the subjunctive. He says that we may walk in them. He doesn't say that we will, right? So it isn't like once you're justified, you can't help but do good works. He says that's possible, but it's also possible not to do those good works. And, you know, and when I, I share this with Protestants, they are grateful for it because finally, now they have a structure, right, to understand Scripture because they just kind of blipped off 10 because it just seemed like 10 didn't have anything to do with verses 8 and 9.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point, especially with what you said, with the during process. With imputation, it's a one-and-done deal. Uh, of course, that goes into the eternal security. Yeah, but But – Inwardly, you're not really changed. As Martin Luther said, you're like a snow-covered cow dung. Mm-hmm. Um, but with infusion, we're being made righteous. And that process of, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, that process of being made righteous is that response to what God is calling us to do for others, uh for the church, whatever, whatever the case is. I'm have that correct.
0: Uh yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, we're like uh, branches in a vine, and through the vine we we're able to bear fruit, and uh, that's ultimately the good works we do. And then, uh, and then of course, William, then you bring up uh, how are we judged? We're judged by our good works, and so that's really where it comes in, because for Protestants they have a difficulty connecting justification by faith alone with salvation by works, right? God, right. In, in every portion of the New Testament and Old, says God's going to judge us on our works. That determines whether we go to heaven or not. So how do you connect the works in justification, if they don't mean anything, with the works in which we're going to be judged at the end of time? See the right. problem?
1: Right. When, when I was, yeah.
0: I remember being taught this At
1: uh, Sunset Wesleyan Church when I was a teenager, that the good works you do, you get more crowns like on your, you know, we have more jewels on your crown. You get a maybe instead of an apartment in heaven, you have a house, a mansion, uh, whatever the case is. So what's the Catholic view? I guess that would be my question to you
0: well I mean the Catholic view is really the scriptural view uh, you mm-hmm. could just look at any judgment scene uh, depicted in scripture and and for example I think it's Matthew 25 the sheep and the goats right mm-hmm. what determines whether you're uh, going to enter into the kingdom prepare for you or you're not it's ultimately did you feed the hungry did you clothe the naked did you give water right and that's mm-hmm. not a matter of rewards right he doesn't mention crowns. He's talking about your final destination, ultimately. And, you know, it's like a mantra throughout all of Scripture that you'll be judged according to your works. Um, so I would say, yeah, in some sense, yeah, good works are, are crowned. We receive rewards. Actually, use Catholic jargon, we achieve merit, right? That's merit is a reward. Um, but, in, but it's also a salvation issue. Mm-hmm. Now, William, how people get around this, and this is usually how eternal security works, because of that tension between being justified by faith alone and being judged by works, they'll say this, generally. They'll say, okay, if you're truly justified, okay, you're truly righteous, you will necessarily do the good works by which Christ will give you the thumbs up and you'll go to heaven. Okay? So if you're truly justified, you'll necessarily do those good works by which you will go to heaven. Okay. That's usually how that's reconciled. And so, uh, you know, so the question is, can you show an instance where somebody is truly justified and yet not do good works and ultimately end up being damned? That's really the the, the task in front of us as far as— uh, uh, tackling uh, salvation guaranteed
1: right you bring up a an important point there because all of us sin I mean <laughs> all, all of us do it so if right yeah. if someone is just so if someone is truly saved and they don't do it how can they still be saved well yeah. of course in the in the Protestant view well if works don't matter you kind of get around that Gary, do you think that's how this whole idea of eternal security came about initially? Was trying to reconcile that conflict or supposed conflict there?
0: Yeah, I think so. I, I, I you know, historically, I've never delved into what are the origins of this belief. Um, because I, Luther believed, if, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you believed that you could apostatize, you could forsake the faith, and that in that case, you would be damned um and then you have kelvin with the idea of election and also how do you know whether you're elect and i think it's really through that stream within uh okay. Pro- thought where um you you started coming up with this idea of uh, once saved always saved okay so
1: I, I guess how would we reconcile then as catholics especially through eternal security I'm sorry if I'm jumping around here. Ephesians okay. 2, 8 through 9. Mm-hmm. I know we covered verse 10 with, say, James uh
0: 224. Okay. Well, then uh, it's easy because what happens is, what is James talking about? Uh, that before, during, or after phage, right? So James, the passage in James doesn't speak about good works done before justification, unlike Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? But it does speak about, uh, for example, he says, you see that faith was, wait, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by the works. Thus scripture was fulfilled when it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says, see how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so he's talking about when, when was ju- Abraham originally justified. Actually, that one's even a little ambiguous. But sticking to James, he's quoting from Genesis 15, verse 6, right? Abraham believed God and is credited into righteousness, as righteousness. Um, so that's Genesis 15. When did he offer Isaac on the altar? Was it before Genesis 15 or afterwards? Well, it was afterwards in Genesis 22, right? So when he says that these works justify us, he's talking about the works that's done after our initial justification. You know, it's like what verse 10 in Ephesians 2.10 is talking about, those good works that God made, has prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. He's not talking about good works done before justification, which is what Protestants, you know, all the negative verses talk about, you know, that it's it's not by works, lest any man should boast. Does that help? It does. It does. Yeah, so, so like, James 2.24 fits in that third category, not the first or the second.
1: I bring it up because I still see it within Protestant circles that there seems to be this conflict between Paul and James. Yeah. Just like it goes back to Luther <laughs> when yeah, he called it a, exactly. an epistle of straw. People are still trying to reconcile it, but you laid it out so so simply and when there's no conflict within scripture. And I mean, so I mean it's all there. But Gary, what are some of the Trump verses for eternal security that are out there?
0: Okay. Yeah. Um there's not very many. There's only three or four that are absolutized, right? And uh are used. So let's go through a couple of them. Uh one is in John six, um, John six, thirty-six through forty. Let me read that for you. This is, this is the Bread of Life discourse, right? So all mm-hmm. us Catholics are very familiar with this text. Right in the middle of the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus kind of goes off on a, a side tangent, supposedly, okay? And he says this. He says, But I told you that although you see me, you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me, because I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose anything of what he gave me, but I will raise on the last day. Uh, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. So this is seen as okay, so if you're drawn by the Father to come to Christ, then you will never be lost, right? Jesus would not reject you, you will not let you get out of the fold, therefore you're eternal secure, you'll receive eternal life and be raised on the last day. Okay, so that's one proof text. Um, and you know, let's let's look at it if you want. Maybe we could go through each one and they do you have, have any degree. comments? Uh, any comments on that, William? Before I go and tear it apart. No, 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 no comments on it.
1: Uh, that is one of the ones that I commonly hear as
0: well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So you know what's interesting is Scripture actually tells us the meaning of this discourse. One th- before I do that though, a careful reader will note that Jesus is saying something that only pertains to the people that were there present at that time. Okay. Because let me ask you a question, William. Um, let's pretend, You're a Protestant, okay? Okay. Do you believe Jesus? Yes. Okay. Have you seen Jesus? No. Okay. Well, Jesus says everyone who sees the Son and believes in him has eternal life. So you might believe in him, but you haven't seen him. So how does this verse fit with you? Don't know. <laughs> yeah. You see my point? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously directed at his audience. He's not, we might have an application for future Christians, but primarily he's talking about this particular situation. That's my point. Okay. Okay. So hopefully, you know, somebody will be able to see that. Hold on. This is not a universal declaration. Okay. So what does he mean that I will not lose anyone he gave me? Why did he give it? Right in the middle of the Bread of Life Discourses of all places. Well, it's because, as you know, William, Bread of Life Discourse is one of the most disastrous discourses Jesus ever gives. It's the only time in Scripture that his own disciples leave him because of something he taught. Right. right? And so right after they leave, right, he turns to the apostles. He says, do you also want to go? Peter says, you know, whom do we go? So on and so forth. And it says this in in verse 64 and 65. A lot of people miss this. It says, but there are some of you who do not believe. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the ones who would betray or the one who would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one comes to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Okay, so Jesus himself says, this is the meaning of that, what I said earlier, that I know who truly believes in me, and I know that the people who are going to leave and who ultimately will betray me, okay? Okay. So, so what's going on in 636 through 40 is he's letting his apostles know, look, when people leave, when the disciples leave, don't be worried about that. I already know about this. I know they're not going to leave. I know they don't truly believe, right? So he's preparing them for what's about to happen. Okay. And then in John 7, 7 through 9, he says, now this is where Judas leads the soldiers to pick up Jesus in the garden, okay? And again, he refers back to that same verse. Uh, he says, or um, it in verse 9, he says, this was done to fulfill what he had said. I have not lost any of those you gave me. Who's he referring to? He didn't lose any of the apostles that God gave him, but Judas betrayed him, and he knew that in the beginning. So you see why it was important that everyone who sees the Son and believes, right, will will be saved. It's because he, he wants to show the apostles that, his ultimate betrayal and uh, the defection of his own disciples was already foreknown, and it was part of the plan of God, and they weren't the ones that the father gave them okay so it has no application about well, I believe, therefore i'm going to be raised on the last day It's totally different context okay <laughs> okay I got you. yeah well, I guess the danger
1: with the interpretation. Protestant wise is later on in the bread of light discourse. That's how, maybe how they get the whole, um, interpret it as a symbol. Jesus didn't really mean it literally because they are kind of misinterpreting the context earlier on and fitting it into their theology further on. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Sure. Yeah. You know, another proof text too. I know you've heard this one's John 10, uh, 27 through 29, you know, the good shepherd. And he says, my, v- My sheep shall hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can take them out of the father's hand. I use that one all the time. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, you hear the true sheep hear Jesus's voice, right? right? They know him. They follow him. They receive eternal life, and they never will perish. I mean, it's all right there, right? So that was a favorite one of yours, huh? It was. It, it, was, a,
1: <laughs> it was a favorite one just because it seems so uh, cut and dry. Like, yeah. you believe you're going to be in his hand no matter what. Yeah. But I, I, know I came to realize later on, and stop me if I'm jumping ahead, that it doesn't— no one can snatch you out of your hand doesn't mean that you can't jump off or you can't step <laughs> off the hand— Um, I came to realize that later on, but
0: yeah, (laughs) Yeah. well, you know, one thing to point out, and I actually learned this through a Baptist who um, I I wish I grabbed a book from my stacks because I don't remember the title right now, but he wrote a book refuting eternal security. Now, this is not a Catholic. And on this verse, he points out something that probably isn't very obvious to the average reader, unless, you know, Greek and you know, you're tracking along with them. But Jesus is using the present indicative here on all these verbs. And it has a sense of a continuing sense, okay? And if you read it with that in mind, you find out that this is, text is saying something a little different than how most people read it. Uh, he's he's saying, they that are hearing and continue to hear my voice, I'm just going to emphasize it, and are I am knowing them and continuing to know them, and they are following and continuing to follow me, and I am giving and continually giving them eternal life, and they will never perish. Okay? Hmm. So as long as you're hearing the voice and, and continually hearing the voice, right, Jesus will know you and continually know you, right? You will continually follow him, and then he'll continually give you eternal life. So as long as you're within that conditions of hearing and following, right, then you're in his hand and no one can take you out of the hand. But if you remove yourself from that condition, you stop listening to Jesus, you stop following him, what's the implication? Jesus will stop knowing you and he'll stop giving you eternal life.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. So in a sense, when you're on, uh, to put it in Catholic terms, when you're in the state of grace, nothing can ever get you out of the state of grace, except if you take yourself out of the state of grace. Right. You are invincible if you're in the state of grace. The only thing that could get you out is your own will and refusal to repent, ultimately. Right. Yeah. Good points yeah
1: i'm sorry you know gary i look at some of this stuff now and like it makes so much sense right but when i was Protestant, i'm like it was the furthest thing it was, it was i don't know i sometimes i'm baffled still i guess that's the awesome thing about our faith is all these years later i still look back i'm like wow how can i not see something that was so plain
0: yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's the Trump verses, I believe. You know, it's like these things were just so clear that all the other passages in Scripture kind of thrown aside. So, um, and there's a few other ones like Romans 8 and uh, 1 John 5. Uh, We could go through that if you'd like, or if you want, we could go through some of those negative ones that show that you can lose your salvation.
1: Well, let's touch on 1 John 5 because that's another one.
0: Yeah, you know, okay.
1: I, I I first on 513, I write this, that you may know that, you know, you'd be saved. I'm yeah. Paraphrasing again. How about that one? How do we reconcile that one as Catholics? And I yeah. love what Steve Ray said about it, but I'll save it for after you're done.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I defer to Steve because uh, Steve Steve lived it. He didn't just learn this stuff. Um, Yeah. He says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Right. So uh, you can have – you can know that you have eternal life. Uh, You know, you have this assurance of eternal life. But what they frequently miss is that very beginning, he says, I write these things so that you may know, right? Right. And actually, William, that's the problem with eternal security is they don't place their faith in Christ. What they're really placing their faith is in their faith. Mm. They know they're eternally secure because they believe themselves to be eternally secure, And that makes them eternal secure, right? It's it's circular. But anyway, so what did John write, right? If you look at the beginning of John 5, he says, uh, I'll read it for you. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the begotten of God, everyone who loves the Father also is begotten by him. In this way, you shall know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for whoever is begotten by him conquers the world, right? And the one who conquers the world is the faith, our faith. So what did he write? Keep the commandments. Exactly, yes. (laughs) And that's how we have assurance. What did Steve have, by the way? I heard it in his
1: conversion story because it was one of those ones that I bought when I was – considering Catholicism. He said, I used to use this one all the time, 1st John 5, 13, but I ignored the 23 ifs before that verse Oh came yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, it it's great, yeah. There's all these conditional statements, you know. Uh, if you um, confess your sins, Christ is faithful and just and will forgive them, right? But what about the if weapon if you don't? right. You know, people don't <laughs> go to the flip side. <laughs>
1: If you're not repentant, you're not going to be forgiven of them. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how right. about so how about some of the how about some of those verses that show that you can lose them? Because obviously, yeah. sometimes those are overlooked because they're not fun per se. I guess. <laughs> yeah,
0: sure. And you know, there's a ton of them, William. I mean, we could spend a whole program going through. It's amazing how many verses compared to the the four you know three or four proof or trump verses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll just give you. One from the Old Testament, a couple from the new, okay? Okay. Uh Ezekiel eighteen, twenty-six through twenty-seven is very interesting. It says, When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies because of it because of it, for his iniquity which he committed he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns from his wickedness, which he had committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. What's interesting here, William, is notice that you can turn from your righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. It's possible for someone to start off righteous, turn from it, commit iniquity, and die in that state. And it says that he will die. And it's also possible for a wicked man to repent, to to practice righteousness, and be saved. So that just shows that righteousness isn't like a one-time declaration that can never you know, uh, it's a status that doesn't change. Uh, it can change. Okay, um, there are basically almost every parable of Jesus <laughs> undermines this. Uh, the parable of the seeds in Mark four, for example. Uh, you know, the sower sows the seeds. Some of them fall on rocky ground. Uh, some uh, the sun, it don't have deep roots, and the sun burns it, scorches them. And then, and then what's interesting, some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and produced no grain, okay? And then there's the fruitful seed that grows up and produces fruit. And now the problem with parables is Protestants will say, well, parables can mean anything, right? Mm-hmm. How do you know it's talking about this? Well, Jesus says— Did you understand this parable? And he explains it, right? And he says, uh, says, And these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word and receive it at once with joy, but they have no root, they last only for a time. But when tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So that's interesting. So they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but... Ultimately, they're destroyed with tribulation. And then it says, and those sown among thorns are another sort. They are the people who hear the word, but worldly anxiety and the lure of riches and the craving for other things intrude and choke the word, mm. and it bears no fruit. So it's like you can be a seed that has roots, that grows up. You're in grace, right? You're justified, but worldly cares can just to choke it off. Right. Okay? OK, um, then you have the uncompassionate um, or the unforgiving debtor in Matthew eighteen twenty one and following uh, this one. You know, there's a, Jesus tells a parable and the context is how many times should I forgive my brother his sin? You know, not seven times, but 77 times. And then he gives this parable about this servant who owed his master an enormous debt. The debt there is so enormous; it's impossible for him to pay. It's like the national debt, right? Right. And he uh, is going to send him off to sell everything and uh, basically end up in pauper's prison. Um, But the guy, you know, the guy repents. He begs the master to have pity on him, and so the master forgives the entire loan. Okay. So this is like us Christians. We're dead in sin, right? We're unrighteous. There's no way we can earn our justification like we said earlier, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Um, so we we beg God for mercy, and God is merciful to us. He forgives our debt. Our sins are wiped away. And then what happens? Well, that servant, that same servant who received forgiveness, right, finds somebody who owes him just a little bit of money, and he, he starts choking him and says, pay back what you owe. And this, the the person does the same thing he did. He begs for forgiveness. And instead, what does he do? He throws him in prison to pay back his debt. Word gets back to the king, right? And yep. the king hears about it. He sends for his servant, and he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you your entire debt because you begged me. Why didn't you have pity on your fellow servant as I had on you? And 34 is very interesting, William. It says, Then in anger, the master handed him over to the torturers until he paid back the whole debt. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, he had his debt forgiven. Okay. Just like we are justified, our sins are forgiven. But because he was unmerciful to his fellow servants, he gets thrown into the same place where he ultimately would be. Right. And then Jesus, now some people will say, well, okay, well, that's fine. He's just talking about rewards or something like that, right? Th- or maybe the non-Christians. Maybe this is just mm-hmm. for Jews. Verse 35, so will my heavenly father do to you unless each of you forgives his brother from his heart. Okay, so obviously these are Christians. Their fellow Christians are brothers. Um, and, you know, basically if, if you are unmerciful to... Others, you know, you will ultimately uh, not be shown mercy at the end of time. Okay, well, now, all those things people can wiggle out of Mm -hmm. because they can say, well, you know, was he truly saved? Was that truly forgiven? Or this doesn't apply to Christians, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I think this is the best passage. It's uh, John 15, the vine and the branches. Uh I've used this for years, and usually— this is you know again this is one of those passages where you'll hear preachers say this is one of the most difficult passages to understand or they'll say this is a parable we don't really know what Jesus is saying <laughs> you know all sorts of wiggle room but uh, I think this is a, a great test case for can you be <clears throat> justified can you be in Christ can you be uh, having eternal life hearing the, the shepherd's voice and following him and having eternal life, is it possible for you to stop and ultimately be damned okay okay so john 15 jesus says i am the true vine and my father is the vine grower he takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit and every one he does that does he prunes so that it bears more fruit now he says to his apostles you are already pruned because of the word in which i spoke to you remain in me as I remain in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own, unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you, uh, unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Okay? So whoever remains in me, and I in him will bear much fruit, because without me you can do nothing. And that's an important point, too. As Catholics recognize that, that you know, it's, we can't do good works on our own. Anything we do is ultimately through Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so anyone who does not remain in me will be thrown out like a branch and wither. People will gather them and throw them into a fire, and they will burn. Okay. Now, remember back a few minutes ago, William, we, we laid out that scenario about that tension between Justification by faith alone and being judged by good works. And we said the only real way you can reconcile those two is if if you're truly justified, then you'll necessarily do good works by which you will be going into glory, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So according to that scenario, every branch that's in the vine must bear fruit and therefore enter into glory, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually used this in the debate on the radio um it' was a very interesting response uh, and I said see according to your theology all the branches should bear fruit but that's not what Jesus says there are some that remain in the vine that bear fruit and they're pruned so they could bear even more fruit and then there's branches that don't remain they don't bear fruit and what happens to them a couple of things first they're they're withered and they're cut from the vine now this in this scenario, Jesus is divine, so they're cut off from Jesus, uh, and they're th- gathered together, and they're thrown into the fire and burned. Okay. Now, that doesn't sound like salvation to me. Right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think, you know, here, so how do you explain that, right? Now, in my debate, it was on radio, and it was just silence, for a couple of minutes, I mean, it was, you know, in, you know, in radio, William, you have a couple of seconds of silence. It seems like an eternity it seems forever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was nothing. So I said, OK, well, why don't we go on to something else? Because there was just no response. And uh, and so I've used this and and there's a couple of canned responses, but they all fail. They ultimately all fail. Uh, for example, Jay Vernon McGee. You ever listen to Jay Vernon McGee? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 His response to this is uh this isn't talking about salvation. Because in the Bible, uh being burned is purification. So what Jesus is really saying is that those who don't bear fruit, they'll be purified. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know it's shocking, but that's what he, that's how he interprets. I've heard other people interpret okay. it as well. Problem is, you know, purification as a metaphor applies to um, metallology. Or was it, um, you know, it's a smelting of, of metal, purifying metals. It doesn't apply to purifying branches. Right, branches get burned up. Right. <laughs> so this isn't a metaphor for purification. The other funny thing too, you'll enjoy this is, in a sense, James Vernon McGee is pointing to purgatory. It <laughs> sounds like
1: it. <laughs> That's exactly why that, that was. That's why it was my response was the way it was. That's the first place my mind went. <laughs> of all places, Jay Vernon McGee, I don't think he would go there intentionally. I know. <laughs> I,
0: I know, but that's like you have to twist it so badly that you end up doing something like that. Um, you know, the other thing, uh, John Kelvin basically said it, it was really weird. If you read Kelvin's commentary on this passage, uh, he basically psychoanalyzes Jesus' words. And he's saying that, see, these were branches that thought they were in the vine, but they really weren't. Just like in the church, there's people who think they're Christians, but they really aren't. But then what Jesus says there, though. (laughs) Yeah, well, first, yeah, it's an objective. I mean, he says, I'm the vine, my father's the vine grower. This is objectively speaking. It's not what the branches thought, Right. Uh, so that that collapses. Um, the other thing, too, another response, this one's pretty funny, is uh, um, they said, well, the branches that were didn't bear fruit and were cut off, they really weren't in the vine. Um, you know, they just never were. You know, it's kind of like Kelvin, but they didn't really think it through. Now, think about that. William, how can you remain somewhere that you never were? Right. Like, how, how can you remain seated when, if you've never sat or remain standing if you never stood, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, these branches are in the vine. Now, here's a beautiful thing. This idea of being in me, right? We find where? In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, when Jesus says that you're created in Christ Jesus for the good works, Right. So to be in Christ Jesus is to be justified. So in this parable, the branches that are in the vine are justified, right? And it's talking about good works, you know, fruit. So I don't know. I've never heard a decent response to it. Um, there's others that may say, well, this only applies to the apostles, but that's, that can't be uh, held either. So, um, yeah, any further thoughts? I think the major takeaway
1: is you can't, is those Trump verses. You can't go to three or four verses out of all the ones that are in scripture. You have to take the totality of scripture and apply the whole thing. And that's how you get the coherent whole of you can't, yes, we're saved by faith. Absolutely. We're not saying that we're we're not Pelagians. Where if we go out and help the poor without grace, we're trying to save ourselves. That's not what it is. Everything is through grace in Christ, and we have to respond to that grace on a daily basis. And when you look at all of Scripture, that's what's taught.
0: Yeah, and the only way to get out of that is those Trump verses. So yeah, the most important thing for me is the per- you need to first address those Trump verses, and then everything else kind of fits in. You know, uh, a good friend of mine, Dan Egan. Uh, he, uh, one of his relatives is Protestant. For years, he's been going back and forth with his Protestant relative, and he used what I, I said here with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and ten, the uh, why are we, you know, why we always judged on coordinated works, and then John fifteen. Okay, and he was in a car. He did this with this relative. He said, Gary, it was strange. For the first time in years, whenever I said something, he didn't he didn't say anything. He was just silent, and he started talking to himself, and he would say stuff like, well, what if, and then he would stop himself, and he'd say, well, what about, and then he'd stop, and he said, you know what, at the end of our car ride, he turned to me and said, you know what, Dan, I think you're right, and the reason wow. is because you gave him that structure so that all these weird, inconsistent verses, like you said, throughout all of Scripture, suddenly kind of fit together, and it makes sense. Wow,
1: amazing. Yeah. Well, Gary, where can our listeners learn more about you and check out all the great stuff that you're doing?
0: Yeah, well, um, I have a website, handsonapologetics.com. Also, garymachuda.com. That's where they can get the CD set and other things I've made. Um, And on YouTube, of course, we're doing the Apocrypha Apocalypse, so uh, you can check that out. And finally, on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, I do a daily show Monday through Friday, and we have awesome guests like... William Hemsworth and and, uh, Trent Horn and people like that. So uh, that's the way to to get a hold of me.
1: Right. Well, Gary, thanks for your
0: time today. Uh, I really appreciate it, as always. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. God bless.